We're carrying on our, our, our series um, in, I don't know why I wear this, it's too hot. Uh, our series, Teach Us to Pray, as, as Han just said, we're going to be in the Psalms in a moment. If you're a guest here, you're so welcome. My name's James, I lead the team here, and uh, we're, we're thrilled to, uh, to have you with us and really hope you feel at home with us. And if you've been coming on the last few weeks, you're so welcome. It's good to see you. You'll know that we started this series last week in uh, the book of Psalms. If you missed it, you can check it out online and listen again. I encourage you to do that. Uh, we're really, as Han said, just focusing at the moment on, on praying. And I want to just thank you, every single person who has been praying and joined with us, whether you downloaded the app or you used the old-fashioned paper method uh, so, or, or the old-fashioned usual words method of praying. Um, we're we're so thankful for everybody praying with us and want to encourage you to do that. Please do come along this week. Our focus, as I said, last Sunday is really in this, in this kind of next few weeks is Colossians uh, chapter 4. Um, those kind of couple of verses at the beginning of Colossians 4, verse 2 to 4, which says, Continue steadfastly or devote yourselves in prayer, being watchful with it in, with, in it with thanksgiving. And that's really kind of where we want to be. We want to be a people who continue steadfastly in prayer, give ourselves to it, devote ourselves to it, are watchful in it with thanksgiving because we've got an awful lot to be thankful for. And then, and then Paul says in the very next bit, at the same time, pray that God may open a door to us for the word. And we are seeking God at the moment about where next in our multiplication. Um, we've launched a number of venues over the last couple of years, and we're going to launch another one this year. But we're just really seeking God exactly on where and when and timings. And so this week of prayer is going to be significant. Um, it's going to be an important one. We're going to be praying through some stuff. We're going to be coming and expecting God to speak to us. Um, and so I just want to I really encourage you, it kicks off Tuesday night, we're, we're just going to get straight in on Tuesday, come before the Lord, say, Lord, you are worthy, we're going to be watchful, devoting ourselves with thanksgiving, and then we're going to say, God, would you come and, and speak, would you come and, uh, and, and stir our hearts together corporately as a people of what you're wanting to do in us and through us this year. I think it's going to be a significant week. I'd really love you, if at all possible, uh, to try and get yourselves along here. And as well as that, praying every single day. Just uh, we as corporately together, praying is so important. Honestly, I can't tell you how significant prayer is and how significant it has been in the life of this church uh, well, every church, but this church particularly, we have responded throughout our history to what God has been speaking to us about. And as we pray and seek his face, we believe that he speaks to us. And so I really want to encourage us this week, let's, let's really continue to press into this. If you can make it at all this week, pray. If you can't, please do join us every single day and pray. Newcom.church forward slash pray. And here's everything we looked at last week. God desires us to pray. That's his desire, and he loves it when we do. He loves it when we ask him for things, and he promises that anything that we ask in accordance with his will, he will give it to us. He loves to give. Anything we ask in accordance with his will, that's amazing. So the key question then, as we looked at last week, is what is it to ask in accordance with God's will? How do we know? That's where we land in the Psalms. And the Psalms are God's authorized words for us to speak back to him. So God in his grace and in his mercy has given us a whole book, 150 Psalms, that are his authorized words for us to speak back to him. But we have a challenge of understanding the Psalms, like can we really pray them? Everything we looked at last week, are these, 
Are these words actually true of me? If you've got your Bible, turn to Psalm 15. We're going to see how this works out. And the answer, can we pray the Psalms, is yes, of course we can pray the Psalms, but not because of us. They are not principally about us. So when it comes to reading the Psalms, there are three ways of reading them. This is a psalm for me. It's all about me. It's my psalm. Problem with that is it gets us into some trouble, as we'll see in a moment. Or we can recognize, no, it's not about me. It's not written principally for me. It is a psalm of, usually of David. Some of the others are written by some others, but usually of David. So if David can pray, I must be able to. How can we be so sure? And the root, well, that's where we looked at last week. The third way is understanding that these are psalms of David fulfilled in Jesus that can now be sung or prayed by the church. And as the part of the church, as part of the people of God, means I can too. And we looked at last week, the Psalms are really songs, and Jesus is the, the choir master, and we're the ones who are in the choir. He leads the singing. He's out front. It's all principally about him, fulfilled in him. And because you and I are hidden in him, if we're a Christian here today, we get to sing them and pray them too. So let's look at uh, Psalm 15. We're going to get to Psalm 16 in a moment, but it's really helpful to look at Psalm 15, first of all, uh, to, to understand this and just remind and kind of reorientate ourselves into what's going on with the Psalms. Because Psalm 15 is about who, who, can, who gets to draw near to God, who is, is kind of authorized, if you like, or allowed or invited, who gets to come into the presence of God. And Psalm 15 gives us the answer. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who, who can come and be with you? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who gets to come into your presence? Here's the answer. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Huh. This is a psalm about me. <laughs> I've got a problem. Who gets to draw near to God? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right. You walk blamelessly today? Those, verse 2, speak true words. Verse 3, in love. Wow. Those who honor people. Verse 4, like properly honor people, not just say nice things about them. Like honor people. Those, verse 5, who are generous. Those who are transparent and honest and faithful to the word. That's the bar. That's who gets to draw near to God. That's a high bar, right? <laughs> like those who are blameless. Like, I'm, yeah, they're not me. I ain't, how on earth, if this is about me, do I get there? Well, I, I can't. Now, these are a challenge to us, a convicting. I need to make sure I speak the truth in love. I need to be as blameless as I can be. I need to make sure I walk with integrity. I need to not rip people off. I need to be transparent and honest. But fundamentally, if this is about me, that puts such pressure and weight on me because I'm not even going to be able to do all of that throughout the course of this sermon. But fundamentally, this is also a reminder this is not about me. 
This is fulfilled in Jesus. This psalm then is a reminder that we can come to God, but only through his grace. There is no one but Jesus who lived with perfect integrity. Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Jesus is the only one who ever walked or lived with perfect integrity. And because he's our savior, we can now go to God. Look at verse 16 of, of, Psalm, of Hebrews 4. Let us then, let us then, in view of what, who God is, in view of who Jesus is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wow. So I can't, because I'm not blameless, but he is, and my life now is hidden in him, and because he can come dwell with God, now I can approach the throne of grace as well. So Psalm 15, yes, I can pray it wonderfully, not because of me, because I am not blameless, I am not pure in heart, I do not always speak the truth in love, I do not always get it right, but Jesus has, and Jesus does, and Jesus will, and my life is hidden in him, and so therefore I can pray this, and now I can come into the very presence of God. Now, this is super important that we understand this. This is how it works. It's not just the case of going, well, I know it's not about me, but it must be about Jesus. Therefore, I can pray it. I'm fine. Now, it, it, in God's grace and God's mercy, it works if you do that. But it actually helps us so much more if we understand the depths of what's really going on in this psalm. Because every psalm was written in a particular context by a particular person about a particular event. And there is much that we can draw out and, and learn from as we begin to wrestle with and understand what was it for David to pray this psalm and therefore how ultimately is it fulfilled in Jesus and therefore how can I pray it as a result? Because it's really important to understand that when we pray the psalms, when we're praying scripture, we are implicitly acknowledging in our agreement and our commitment to not only hear these words but also to do them. When we're praying this stuff, we're basically saying, I'm in agreement with this. I'm signing up to what this says. This is what I am going to behave like. This is how I am going to act. I'm going to align my life with what these words say. Now, of course, we're acknowledging that it's only ultimately Jesus that can pray them and only Jesus that can ultimately live out these things perfectly. We can't, but what we're acknowledging in that moment is that because of Jesus, we now can, and we're declaring the wonder of the gospel. You see, not only does, in the gospel, not only does Jesus take what we deserve, our punishment, our guilt, our shame, but he gives us, in exchange, his perfect life. That's the great exchange, his perfect record for our imperfect one. His righteousness for our, at best, feeble attempts. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's the incredible reality of it. And this is what causes us to continue steadfastly in prayer. This is what causes us to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Because I know I'm not blameless. I know I don't always do what is right. And yet, because of Jesus in the sight of God, I am now blameless. I have now not got my track checkered track record anymore but his perfect blameless one and so when because of the gospel when God the father looks on me he doesn't see all my mistakes and my mess ups and my attempted this and my attempted that and my failure at this and my failure at that he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to me wow some of us have got to learn that 
we look and we see all our mistakes. God the Father does not. He looks and he sees the perfect, blameless, perfect, righteous record of Jesus Christ, credited now to your account forevermore. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to lose it. It's yours in Christ. That causes us to be thankful. I mean, at least it should if we think about it. But also what I'm underlearning, as I pray these things, I'm recognizing that everything that God, everything I need to live a life of godliness, God has given me. So I'm not only just praying these things to thank God, great, thank you, Jesus, and then carry on myself. I'm thanking God for what he's done, and I'm saying, okay, now, God, you've given me everything I need to live the kind of life that you've called me to. So you have made me positionally holy, and now you've given me everything I need to actually live a holy life. And so as I learn to pray these words, I'm not only thanking Jesus for what he's done for me, but I'm also agreeing with him and lining my life up and saying, okay, that is now increasingly what I'm going to behave like and what I'm going to live like. And so praying these psalms not only remind us of what God has done, but they also shape how we now live And they shape our emotions and they shape our feelings and they teach us and train us how to pour out our hearts to to God, but in a manner that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And they reorder them and change us and shape us from the inside out. So let's have a look at how this works in Psalm 16. Because in Psalm 15, David says that it's only the blameless and the godly who will be unshaken. It's only the blameless and the godly who will be unshaken. And then in Psalm 16, he develops this theme in terms of our desires. And that's the theme of this, of this psalm. We have these affections. We have these desires in us, the things that we want. And the first six verses of Psalm uh, 16 are all about our chosen loyalty, where, where we look to to get the things that we want. And we have a choice. All think back to last week, Psalm 1. What we delight in now, we'll inherit for all of eternity. So we have a choice. Where we look now determines what we get. And the second half of Psalm 16, as we'll see in a moment, is, is the stuff that you get depending on what you look at. So you're, you, if you desire the right things, you desire the God things, you desire God stuff, then you get God stuff, which is always good stuff, by the way. And if you don't, you won't. Psalm 1, verse 5 and 6, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This psalm basically says, whatever you set your heart's desire on, that's what you're going to inherit. So what, what do you desire? What's the desires of your heart? What do we want? What do we really want? What's the desire of my heart? Now, I know the answers I want to give. I want to be the guy from Psalm 15. <laughs> that's the desire of my heart. That's what I want to say, and yet... I know even as I say that, it's not the whole truth. See, desires, how do you know what your desires are? They're the things that you think on the most. In this day and age, they're the things you click on the most. Google knows what the desires of your heart are. Big house. Better job. Better wife. Whatever it might be. It's a sobering thought, right? Google knows what the desires of your heart are because that's what we spend our time looking at and dreaming of. How to get rich quick. How to get around a better, get whatever. 
So how do we read this psalm? Because this is important, what the desires of our heart are. Well, we read it recognizing it's a psalm of David, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, that you and I can pray to. Let's have a look. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me. Keep me safe, David says. First line, keep me safe. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is a a prayer for safety. If you know anything of of David's life, you know that David spent a considerable chunk of his life in in danger. You see later in verse 9 to 11, it kind of seems that his life is in danger here. And he prays right at the beginning, God, would you keep me safe? And he immediately professes, as he's prayed that, he immediately professes a single-hearted loyalty to God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He says others can look everywhere else they want. Others can look anywhere else they want for safety. Others can look to the size of their bank balance. Others can look to the, the, the kind of stuff that's coming their way. Others can look to their job. Others can look to their social status. Others can look, they can look wherever they want. But as for me, I'm going to look to the Lord and the Lord alone, God alone. All his desires, all his affections, all of his hopes are in God. He says, apart from you, I have no good thing. He's not waiting for something better to come along. He's not waiting, yeah, okay, God, you've got my attention until something better comes. You know that moment where you've ever been at a party or some kind of social gathering and somebody's talking to you and they are engaged with you, but really they're looking over your shoulder Maybe you're the person the other way around looking over their shoulder, waiting for someone better to come along. So they've got you, they, you've got their attention until someone more popular or someone who they actually want to talk to comes along. So they're kind of talking to you, but they're sort of looking, yeah, 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 and looking over the shoulder. That's the, that's the image here. Oh, something better comes, I'm going. And David says, I ain't over, looking over your shoulder, God, because nothing better is coming along. Because we often do that with God. Yeah, God, you got my attention. But, oh, that looks interesting, and it looks more fun, and it certainly appears to be easier, so I'll... Uh, I'm looking over God's shoulder. David says, no, 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 I ain't looking over your shoulder. God, apart from you, I have no good. Verse three, as for the saints, it's the word hasid, it means the holy ones. As for the holy ones in the land, those who are chosen, those who are loved by God, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David says, I would rather spend time with the holy ones, with the saints, with the, with, with the, with the, the hasid, those who have been chosen by God. I'm not interested in what the celebrities of the day, I'm not interested in those who are outwardly seemingly successful. I don't want to hang around with those. I'd rather spend my time with those who are the recipients of steadfast love, those who have received the hesed of the covenant mercy of God. They're the people I really want to spend my time with. They're the people I really want to hang around with. Why? Because they're like me. They know what it is to receive mercy. They're not chasing the things of the world. They're not trying to look impressive. They're not trying to be something they're not. They're recognizing that they are those who are in God, recipients of his mercy. They're the excellent ones, says David. They're the ones who are truly Back to Psalm 1, truly blessed. Those are the ones who are truly successful because what they have received is something that money can't buy. What they have received is something you cannot earn your way to. What they have received is something that is eternal. 
And then verse four kind of flips, it's the other side of the coin of what um, verse three affirms. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So those who are the excellent ones, the holy ones, they're the blessed ones, but those who look elsewhere, who don't look to God, who look to other things of this earth, who run after other gods, their sorrows shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I'll not pour out or take their names on my lips. See, all around David, there are people who run after other gods. All around us, there are people who run after other gods, who chase success and fulfillment and comfort and pleasure in anything other than the God, which therefore means they're chasing it in idols. And David doesn't envy them. He's like, oh man, I'm stuck here having to do this righteous thing and this holy thing. I'm not sure I'll be doing that. He doesn't envy them. He's not looking over the shoulder of God saying, well, that looks more fun than what I have to do. No, no, he's, he's, he pities them. He's deeply convinced that their lives will lead to sorrow and, and suffer, suffering. But David says, verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is language that stretches back into the Old Testament times, even further back when the people of God, the people of Israel, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, they'd been promised that they're gonna enter the promised land and they never get there until we get to the book of Joshua and finally the people of God enter the promised land. And this is the similar language that is being used here, portion, cup, lot, lines, boundaries. When Joshua divides up the land to the tribes and they're content with it because look, we finally walked into the promise of everything that God has given us. And it's exactly the same imagery here. It's the same language here. David is happy with how things have worked out for him. He's happy with what he's got. He's contented with what the Lord has done for him. What he wants is God above all other things, and anything that God might give him is just purely a bonus. This is the understanding from James 1:17 that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It's that contentment that I'm not chasing anything else. Everything I have is a gift from God, and so I am gen genuinely contented with my lot. I'm contented with the portion that God has given me. I'm contented with how life is worked out for me. It's 1 Timothy 6, 17, who said, Paul says, set your hopes. Rich people, don't set your hopes on the, on the riches of the world. Set your hopes on God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. Everything's a gift. You get things, thank you, God. You don't get things, well, I'm gonna trust him for all I need and I'm gonna be content regardless. And so in these first six verses, David just has this single-hearted loyalty and devotion to God. Apart from you, I have no good things. I'm content with everything I've got. I'm not looking anywhere else. I'd rather hang out with people who, who like me, understand that. I'm not chasing the things of this world. And then verses 7 through 11, we see the result of this single-minded loyalty to God. All the blessings, the stability, the security, which means he will not be shaken. Look at verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He gets guidance from God himself. <laughs> He's not chasing wisdom, trying to, trying to learn some stuff. He gets guidance from God himself. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Cast your eyes back to Psalm 15 verse five. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the same thing. He will not be shaken. 
as a result of the purity of his heart, as a result of the way in which he has pursued the Lord, as a result in which he has said no to the things of this world, but just fixing his eyes on Jesus again and again and again, on God. David now enjoys these wonderful assurance that his prayers for safety, remember that's how he started, verse one, save me, O God, preserve me, O God. He has this wonderful assurance that his prayers will be answered. And because he's totally devoted to God, because there's no split loyalties, David can be confident of life. Look at verse nine. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He doesn't even need to be afraid unto death. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is a Hebrew poetic name for the grave. Saying a man who is utterly loyal to God cannot be abandoned, even to the grave. David rejoices because he's on the path of life. Friendship with God cannot be extinguished even by death. For you will not abandon my soul to show or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is an incredible psalm. This is a, an amazing Wonderful psalm. The one who prays it prays for safety. And because they are wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, they can be confident that they will indeed be kept safe in this life and even beyond the grave. Who gets to pray that? I mean, who with absolute integrity can claim that we have no good apart from God? That we're never looking over God's shoulder, looking for something better. That we never looking at anyone else and kind of thinking, oh, I wish I had their life. That, we're, that our hearts are perfectly pure. That we're perfectly content with our lot. Truth is, if we're really honest, we, we can't pray that in and of ourselves. But this is a psalm of David fulfilled in Jesus so that we can join in. To see how, turn over to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. And as you turn into Acts 2... If you're anything like me reading this psalm, you've kind of got this nagging question. I know I can't pray this, but how on earth can David pray this? Like he prays with a confidence that he is one of the holy ones of verse three. He is one of the saints. Now even if you bring, think this through for a moment, even if I didn't know about all the Bathsheba stuff and all the adultery and the murder and the lying and everything else that David did, this psalm says that for a man who is utterly devoted to the Lord, he will not die. His flesh will dwell secure. He will not be abandoned to the grave. Well, David's dead. And his body is kind of long since decomposed. He, he can't be the man here. So what's going on? Is David a hypocrite? No. You see, David in and of himself couldn't pray these things either. But he wasn't a hypocrite. He was God's chosen one. He was a Hasid from verse three, a holy one. He was a saint. He was one who had been saved by Hesed, the covenant mercy of God. He was a recipient of the love of a covenant God who said, I'm your God and you're mine. David was a believer who trusted in the promises of God. Yes, he was that side of the cross, but he believed by faith. And so the righteousness of Jesus was imputed, was given to David and all the other old covenant believers as well. Hebrews 11 verse 1 and 2 talks about by faith, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Romans 4 verses 5 and 6 explicitly tells us this. It says, and to the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Just as David also speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness. And then he quotes Psalm 32. He's saying, look, David, by faith in God, receives the righteousness of God. He was able to pray it, not because he was perfect, but because God was. And God says, I am your God and you're my person. you're You're my son. You're my beloved. We stand this side of the cross now. And so for those who put their trust in Jesus, we are credited with the righteousness of God. We're not able to pray this in our own strength. We don't pray it just because David prayed it. We prayed it because ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus. Let's see how. In Acts chapter 2, this is a moment where Peter stands up to preach just after Pentecost. Read from verse uh, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here we go. For David says concerning him, see if you recognize these words, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's quoting the exact psalm. Now look what what Peter says here. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. He's dead, not him. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's basically saying... That psalm was prayed by David, but he's dead. We know where his tomb is. He's in the grave. It's not about him. It's about Jesus, who is not dead, who rose from death three days after he was crucified and now sits at the right hand of the Father where there is pleasures forevermore. You see, ultimately, just as Peter says here, there is only one man in history who can sing and pray this psalm with simple and perfect truth. There's only one man in history who can pray for safety and be assured of safety even in the face of death purely because he is the one and the only one who has pure heart before God. He's the only one with absolute integrity who never sinned, who never did anything he should not have done. Here, Peter tells us explicitly that Psalm 16 is a song and a psalm and a prayer of Jesus. And just as Peter said, we testify now to a man who died, but his body did not stay dead. For he was raised on the third day. And this resurrection now demonstrates that in the heart of this man who died... On that cross for us, right in his heart, there was pure pure and perfect love and perfect loyalty to God every single day of his life. 
And the resurrection is the key moment in Jesus' life. Because even though everything Jesus did and said seemed amazing, we cannot see his heart. And you never actually knew. He might just be really good at conning everyone. He might just have gone home and said all that stuff and then spent his evening watching Netflix and, and swearing. We know, we know he didn't. Because the word tells us he didn't and Netflix wasn't invented. But the point is this. We wouldn't know that Jesus was everything he said he was until the decisive moment that he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies that the one who is utterly pure, the one who is utterly undivided, the one who is utterly perfect will die and not stay dead and will be raised to new life. And it's the moment in the resurrection that we now go, Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus is not just someone good to emulate, someone to follow. Jesus is everything that he claimed to be, the son of God, the one who lived with perfect integrity, with absolute righteousness, and who rose to new life. And so Jesus can pray this psalm, and it becomes true of him. And because of Jesus, it becomes true of us too. See, Jesus doesn't pray this psalm simply about his own security. In his past bodily resurrection is our future bodily resurrection. Because he's alive, we're alive. And because he rose from the grave, so will we. And we can have deep confidence in this because when he prays in Psalm 16 verse 1, preserve me and keep me safe, he does so not just for himself, but for all of us who are being kept for him. Jude verse 1. The book of Jude verse 1 has this little phrase where it talks about us, the people of God, being kept for Jesus. So when he prays, save me, preserve me, he does so not just for him, but for us too. Your hope and my hope of eternal security, of bodily resurrection, it rests entirely on the perfect and pure obedience of Jesus. Because he took refuge in the Father, the Father saved him. And the Father rescued him. The Father declared him holy. And so therefore it comes to us too. This, knowing this, transforms how we pray this psalm. Because we now pray it with thankfulness and gratitude. Wow, Jesus, you did what I could not do. You lived the life that I could never live. You have won for me a future that I could never win for myself. You have truly done great things for me. But we also pray it recognizing that as we are praying this, Jesus is now beginning to shape us. And he's beginning to change us. And he's beginning to reorder us. And he's beginning to reconfigure us. And he's beginning to change our desires, the things we long for, the things that we, we want. He's changing us as we pray. And this is why praying is so important. Yes, in prayer, we get things from God. We're asking him for stuff. That's why we should pray, because we need stuff. But actually, as we're praying and praying in an authorized way, praying the words of God back to God, he is beginning to shape us and change us and mold us and align us more and more to him, which means as we're more and more shaped in accordance with him, we begin to ask more and more in accordance with his will, which means we begin to get more and more of the things that we ask for. Prayer is the means by which he is changing us and molding us. And it's so therefore very important that we pray. We don't pray, oh, must pray. Oh, yeah. No, we pray because as we do, he's shaping us and changing us and molding us. You know, the truth is, you and I will have mixed motives until we die. Every single one of us, we're going to have mixed motives until we die. But a heart desire to know God, to delight in God, to learn contentment in God, to believe that blessing is only found in God, to long to obey God, these things will begin to well up in our spirit in our hearts by the Spirit. 
And in our inner being, we're going to begin to delight in the law of God. Paul says in Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Think back to Psalm 1, what we looked at last week. I delight in his, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Wow, yes, that is only true perfectly of Jesus. But because of Jesus, it's increasingly becoming true of us too. Begin to delight, not of things of this world, but in things of God. Begin to look not over the shoulder of God at what might better come along because we know that there is nothing better coming along than God himself. And everything that we now, that we ever could want or need has been given to us. And it's in prayer, being shaped by the word, that those things begin to align in our lives. If you guys could come back, we're gonna sing in a moment. But one of the real important things to recognize what's going on in this psalm, I just want to finish with this, is to understand just what is happening as David prays this and then begin to work it out in our own lives. See, these first six verses here, we might not have statues anymore of idols, of kind of idols of beauty and wealth and love and fertility and all those kind of things that they used to have. But we all live for something. We're all chasing something. And the truth here is that if we live for something other than God, we're trapped. You live for something other than God, you're trapped. You're never going to have enough. It's never going to truly satisfy. It will run out at some point. It will leave you at some point. It will grow up and walk away from you at some point. It will break at some point. You're putting your trust and your hope and your desires and your affection and your loyalty in anything other than God, it will grow old. It will fade. It will perish at some point. But you fix your eyes on the Lord. Say, I've got no hope but you. If we make God our portion, our real wealth, if we make God our cup, our real pleasure, if we make God our ultimate good, we begin to know satisfaction and contentment beyond anything we've ever experienced. And we'll grow more so in it. In praying this psalm, we begin to align our hearts and our minds and our souls with that which is of most importance. And as we do, we recognize that even better things are yet to come. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If God is our greatest good, then we get, because of Jesus, what cannot be lost and what is only going to increase infinitely. The Lord, look at verse 8. The Lord is at our right hand. The Lord is at our right hand. Just think what that means for a moment means he's our advocate in court. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, what do we do? Upward we look and see him there who made an end to all of our sin. Because a sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Wow. The Lord is at our right hand. So he's our support in battle. In every battle we walk into, the one who is victorious and mighty goes before. Because the Lord is our right hand, he is walking with us through the journey of life. So even though I might walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because my God is with me. And if my God is for me, who can be against me? And because of Jesus, this is literally true for every single one of us who have placed our trust in Jesus. If you haven't today, your sorrows are going to multiply. Because you're going to come to the end of yourself. You're going to end up being knackered and exhausted and running around chasing your own tail. But with Jesus, 
with your Savior. He's our representative in heaven, which means we're completely forgiven. He's our companion on earth, which means we're intimately loved, and someday we're going to see him face to face in our resurrected bodies and enjoy endless, unimaginable pleasure because at his right hand, there is pleasure forevermore, all because of Jesus.